Welcome to the Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Williams. If you want to follow the podcast on Facebook, do a search on Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone and the Facebook page will pop right up. If you want to follow the podcast on X, True Social, and Gitter, search for at RKY Freedom. That's at RKY Freedom. Also, this podcast now has a hashtag called RKY Freedom. Therefore, if you want to comment on something I had said during this podcast or written about on social media, use the hashtag RKY Freedom. If you have a suggestion or think I should interview a guest, then email me, Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at protonmail.com. That's Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at P R O T O N M A I L.com. Thank you for listening to the Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone podcast. Jenny Burby was my guest on this episode of the Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone podcast. Jenny and her husband own an outfit called Highlands Unlimited. Highlands Unlimited takes people backpacking, exploring, hunting, and fishing in the backcountry of the San Juan Mountains in Colorado. Jenny and I talk about ballot initiative 114 that passed in Colorado during the 2020 election. Jenny and I talked about the problems that rewilding will cause with ranchers and eventually the average citizens of Colorado if both sides of the political spectrum don't get together without a hidden agenda. I really enjoyed this very fascinating conversation and I think you will too. Buckle up and enjoy the ride. If you are looking for a fun, quirky, mystery, family-friendly adventure, then The World Maker's Assistant may be the book for you. Set in another galaxy, it will have you wondering why Play-Doh, paint, and glue are some of the ingredients on a beloved baking show who's piloting the elusive planet-destroying ship, and if V, the main character, will find her place in the galaxy. If this is your kind of story, visit Amazon.com or OlympiaPublished.com and search for The World Maker's Assistant by Cheryl Olson. Folks, I've read this book and found it very addicting. As a matter of fact, I didn't want to put it down. And you know what? I'd much rather have my teenage or young adult son or daughter read a book like this than a lot of other books out there. So go check out The World Maker's Assistant on Amazon.com or OlympiaPublished.com today. Now, Jenny, it's great to have you on the show, the podcast. How are you? I'm well. How are you this morning, Kevin? Good. Let's learn a little bit about you before we get into our major topic today, and it'll be a very interesting topic for sure. And this probably won't be the last time we'll talk about it. I I may talk about it with you another time or another person who knows, but I think it's a good topic. But uh, let's learn a little bit about you. Uh, You do a very interesting job for a living. I guess you take people out into the backcountry or something. Yeah. So my husband and I own an outfitting business and we um, take people on backcountry trips and provide services both for hunting, fishing, sightseeing, recreating, um, all all things horseback and backcountry. And then we also have done in the past, we've also done quite a bit of government contracting for trails, processes, packing in of gear and necessary equipment that they need for maintenance in the backcountry. Okay. Interesting. 
And so I was referred to you. Lisa Bennett wanted to talk about the wolves in Montana and Wyoming, but then she told me that you would be a better candidate for this topic. Lisa, as some many of you may know, has been a guest on here before. But, uh, yeah, let's just uh, – by the way, real quick, before we dive in here, is there anything about your childhood that uh, is unusual or you would like to talk about? Um, I think what surprises people most about my personal childhood is I was born and raised in Southern California. Uh, my father was a fireman. My mother worked in the ski industry, and um, we – uh, got the benefits of all of that between mountains and beach and the Central Valley where my grandparents were. But you're not a liberal, correct? Uh, you know, actually, I am fiercely independent. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Um, actually, a little side note here. I've been to Northern California. Uh-huh. And I went to Reading. This was back in 1988, back in uh, late, late July. In fact, uh, I was there on August 1st, 1988. And that day is significant because that is the first day that Rush Limbaugh became syndicated. Now, I did not hear his first show, though that would be very interesting. Uh, Rush Limbaugh, I don't know if you know this, got his start at KFBK in Sacramento in talk radio. And I did know that. Yeah, and I, I I I wonder what he was like. I used to get KFBK at night when I lived in Boise, Idaho, and Ontario, Oregon. Um, anyway, I remember though being going to Lake Shasta when I went to Reading, and the water was like bath water. And I didn't know this at the time, but it was down very low because I guess of the irrigation. And I don't know if there was a drought in Reading, but I just remember the water was low. We had to walk clear down the lake to get to the houseboat. It was very interesting. I really enjoyed it. It was like having a swimming pool 24 hours a day. <laughs> it was uh, nice, but not maybe not as refreshing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so let's talk about rewilding. This is a passion of yours, I can tell. Now, I sent you a couple articles. We're going to start. Uh, where do you want to lead us on to this topic because i have so much information about it i really don't know where to begin um i think let's let's begin first of all let's begin at the north american wildlife model okay so north america has been extremely successful in not only conserving but really propagating many many animals in the north american continent utilizing the North American model. And the basis of the North American model is that hunters want to have the ability to hunt in perpetuity, um, insert game of choice. Uh, and what they've done is willingly and actively given money to federal and state agencies and passed legislation to fund wildlife recovery programs and ongoing wildlife study uh, and basically all, 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 all things management. Um, and that is currently heavily under fire, specifically in Colorado, um, but really nationwide and um, 
most heavily tilted to the Intermountain West, where we have the majority of, of public lands. So it just kind of shoe fits together. Okay, so yeah, let's talk about the proposition that passed in Colorado, where it's going to introduce rewild, I guess rewild. Let's talk about what rewild is, though. It's basically introducing former wildlife like wolves and beavers yes. and possibly other animals, but uh, they're going to reintroduce all that to Colorado. And the ranchers are not happy about it, and rightfully so. But let's talk about that. It barely passed, which makes me wonder, and I hate to even bring this up in this day and age, but I have to, if there was voter fraud to make it pass. But I guess that's probably another topic, although you can certainly comment <laughs> on that if you want to. But the very fact that it barely passed makes me wonder. And... A lot of ranchers are upset because what the argument is that I have heard about rewilding, actually, I've heard a couple. First of all, when you're rewilding, you make it so that you have more water because, uh, as you know, the Colorado, River, the Colorado River, which feeds Los Angeles, Phoenix, Arizona, and Tucson, and San Diego, has been low for the past few years because of drought. And I also think it supplies Lake Mead, too, doesn't it, down in Nevada? Yeah. So um, in various forms, everything west of the Continental Divide, the West Slope in Colorado, um, but and everything, it, the Continental Divide, everything that rain, every rain, every drop of rain and every pre drop of precipitation on the West Slope will move and end up in a lot of places, it ends up in the Colorado River drainage and basin. Okay, Same so thing on the I'm, Mississippi on the East Slope. I'm curious about something, and forgive my ignorance. What about water going to the Snake River in Idaho, Wyoming, and British area, and the Columbia River? Where is that water coming from? Uh, well, it's coming this side of the Continental Divide. Um, because the Continental Divide is a general geographic designa designation, so everything on everything that falls on the west side of the Continental Divide generally goes south and west, and everything on the east slope goes well south and east um, or easterly. I don't know um, without a map in front of me. I'm not sure where the Snake River, even though I almost drowned in the Snake River, I thought I was when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure where that, I, I believe the snake goes into the green and then into the Colorado, doesn't it? Well, I know that the Snake River goes into the Columbia. In fact, uh, the Snake River oh, okay. is the biggest trick, uh, trick, uh, tributary to the Columbia. I just wondered, because we were talking about the Colorado River being the main supply, I guess I was wondering, I should probably be more specific, where's the water from the Columbia coming from then, as opposed to the Colorado River? Well, and I think that it, without, I, mean, I am certainly no water expert by any means, but if we think about the topography and geology of where those rivers are transiting, you're looking at the high desert for the Colorado and really various regions uh, in and out of various regions of more rainforest area with the Columbia. Um, 
is my generalized understanding. Okay, interesting. Well, let's get back on topic here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so basically, the argument that I have been reading of arguments is that uh, rewilding is going to bring back wildlife like the songbirds and the beavers. And it's going, the beavers are going to build more dams to hold water, and the water just won't run off. It'll actually seep into the ground and form all this great vegetation. And also, there is an argument being made right now that, at least in South America and in parts of Asia, I think, I think in all of Asia, but certainly Central and South America, that there is an animal, I think it's called taper, T-A-P something. Uh -huh. And let me look at it in my notes here. And the, art, the article that I read talked about how they eat these seeds and it's in their poop. And so they poop uh -huh. it out and the seeds will start to grow again. And therefore these seeds that are providing fruit trees, these big fruit trees, it didn't say what the article was, but, uh, oh, by the way, it's called T-A-P-I-R, top taper, I guess. Uh -huh. uh, it's an animal. Anyway, once they poop these seeds out, assuming that uh, you clean the ground and all that, the seeds are there, the trees will grow, and therefore it'll suck up all the carbon and prevent wild, uh, prevent wildfires or reduce them i should say what do you say about that because i know the ranchers are rightfully so not happy about this ballot initiative passing and then people will say oh well let's uh it's gonna bring back all these animals and all these dams will be created by beavers what would you say to that so the the main premise for rewilding as i understand it is a depending on who you speak to of their proponents, it's either a turn back of the dial to pre-European settlement in North America uh, or South America in the taper sense, um, really worldwide. But it, it's a time when all of, and this is their verbiage, all of nature was in balance. So, there's a predator load that take care of the prey load that take care of the scavengers with what's left over. The um, flora and fauna are in their version of balance. And that as humans moved into these areas and domesticated, whether that was ag agriculturally or now in urban and suburban areas, um, that balance has gone so far out of whack, their terminology, my terminology, their idea, um, that we need to reintroduce every species that we can that was here prior. Um, I think one of the biggest problems with it ultimately is that their chosen periods are at a point where we did have far less humans and far less humans to, in a very simple sense, to feed, um, which we don't have that now. We have a lot of humanity spread out in a lot of areas with um, habitat interface that's not 
always beneficial to all wildlife. Yeah, so what do you say about this argument that the dams will come back, the beavers will make these dams, and therefore the water will, more water will seep into the ground, preventing less runoff? Well, there's always going to be runoff, but I think they're, what they're talking about is it's not it's just going to automatically run off into the Colorado River or whatever. It's going to hold water back. What would you say to that argument, that the beavers will create dams and more vegetation is oh. going to happen? be around in a in a in a very true sense that's true the beavers will come in and do come in um creating their dams creating blockages that create different flowages within river systems and so that's all um i, I can't say that that's not accurate what i can say though is that there are there is human need for that water below that beaver dam and that is the municipal uses that that water is necessary for because of the human populations that we have. And those humans, just as has happened historically, those humans will come in and necessarily have to either, when it becomes a problem, either translocate those beavers if there is another place for them to be or exterminate those beavers because they're not able to grow water in the central valley of california they're not able to grow vegetables in the central valley of california and we have a scope of humanity that is not able to eat um and it, it's it's really simplifying the process if we think about it in those senses. But it it is true. Rewilding is not necessarily inaccurate by any stretch. Um, and how, certainly there is beauty in the ideas. The hard part it is, is that many of those ideas don't fit or are not, um, can't necessarily be as applied as cleanly with the number of people that we have in the world today that need to be fed. Okay, so I uh, forgive my ignorance. This is something that I'm learning about myself. But when the beavers built these dams, obviously I would think that these dams would not be sophisticated as a human building these dams. The reason I bring this up is because I keep hearing, and it's probably true, that there needs to be more dams built along the Colorado River. We hear this in the Northwest. We need more dams on the Snake River so that water can be held back. That way, if there is a drought, hey, guess what? We've got water, and we might be okay for the next five or six years, assuming, of course, that the weather's not going to be completely uncontrollable in terms of a lot of sun and hardly any yeah. rain and so forth. So if somebody says, oh, the beavers will do that, what would you say to that argument? Um, I would actually say that they're, they're relatively, while it is not a layered dam with a gate that opens up and has telemetry to say how much water is being released nor how much is stored, and all of the bells and whistles that we have in modern dams today, um, including hydroelectric power, potentially on some of them. Yes. Um, what we really have is 
uh, a lack of control over where size and scope that the beavers would do. The other part of that is literally we have an over allocated system. There are more people in need, humans in need of water down river than we have water available. And I mean, that that's, I, I live in the desert Southwest, so it's, um, high desert Southwest, uh, but it's a different thought process because the water that gets past my, my house here, I live on a little river called the mighty La Plata, you know, at its widest spots is maybe 40 feet across. Um, if we run over a hundred CFS, we are, our delivery rates are less to the state of New Mexico but basically, New Mexico and the Colorado River are putting a call on our little dribble that goes through here to to fill in the need in Phoenix and eventually in L.A. and the Central Valley. And um, they have more humanity. They are thirstier and have more money to fight it than I do. Yeah, so what you're saying is these beavers will build the dam, but they're not as complex. They can't open up the floodgates. It's hard to build, you know, a beaver's not going to build a hydro-powered dam, which that's a whole yeah. other topic. I don't think we're going to get any hydro-powered <laughs> dams in a while, for a while, but these dams will not be regulated. Is it possible that humans will come and destroy the dams because they're not built the same way a human would build them? Therefore, it'll be harder to supply drinking water down the river or what? Historically, that's why we have that's why beaver has been challenged as the hydrologists in the world is because they get to decide what they get to decide when they get to decide it, where they get to decide it. And humans have other needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So interesting. OK, so. What do you think of uh, the carbon? Uh, I guess what we should do, since this is the Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone podcast, let's talk about this proposition that passed. How do you think it passed? How did this get on the ballot in the first place? And uh, walk me through that if you can. Okay. So um, pre-2019, when it actually became a ballot initiative, um. There was a movement about it. It's, it's been going on for actually, actually in small forms and for decades. Um, we have to roll all the way back to the early nineties when there was the push to reintroduce wolves in the greater Yellowstone. And yes, in, the back Yellowstone in 1995, Park. I remember that as a 15 year old kid. Yep. Yep. In 95. Oh, you just aged yourself and made me feel old, Kevin. Um, oh. <laughs> That's okay. Um, they uh, so these groups, and there there are multiple, and there are spinoffs. Um, but fast forwarding into the two thousands in Colorado, the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project was formed, and their press was to reintroduce wolves into Colorado and fill in the north south 
basically along the rock, Rocky Mountain chain, north to south, have wolves be in all pieces of it. That's the ultimate goal. Um, in 2019, they approached the title board. They got a um, they got approval from the title board with the state of Colorado, and were able to go out and collect signatures from registered voters in the state and collected that the accurate amount of um approved signatures um and were and then were able to put 114 on the Colorado ballot um there were multiple actions trying to fight that and share the word that it it would be problematic or could be problematic there were funding talks. There was a lot of different stuff that went in. But ultimately, the vote won that wolves would be reintroduced west on, on the west slope of Colorado um, and that the planning and implementation would happen pre-December 31st of 2023. So that passed by 1.8%. Wow. Um, primarily along the I-70 and I-25 corridor where the most human population is. And uh, uh, rightly so, there with the most humans, it's also the most urban and suburban. Oh, were they putting the wolves as the most uh, urban and suburb? No, that was, that was the voters that passed it. Oh, oh, out oh. Of, yeah, okay. Out of 60, here's an illustration. So out of 64 counties in the, in the state, only 13 approved the reintroduction. But there's obviously more of the population there than, at, let's say, uh, Grand Junction or some of these rural areas of Colorado, correct? Right. And so. and those those areas are not far, far and away are not the places where the um, where the reintroductions will take place. So let's go over some of the arguments here. People say, well, this was successful in Yellowstone. I'm not sure how successful it was or wasn't because I haven't done the research. Maybe you know. But then the counter argument is, yes, it was successful. However, there's not big buildings in Yellowstone. There's not a lot of transformers or wire, you know, uh, telephone poles and wires yes you've got some but not a whole lot whereas in the rural area your wolves are messing around with the cattle and the fear and rightfully so is that the cattle is going to come after your or the wolves are going to come after your cattle and some people say well yeah well there's uh, there's dogs that protect livestock yeah, uh, yes, like the Anatolians. My understanding, though, as you told me off the podcast, that those dogs will not be able to defeat a big pack of wolves. Now, you did mention something about the Russian dogs, and we can get into that later. Let's start with a K, and I'm not sure that they will do the job. So let's talk about those arguments. Uh, what would you say to all the arguments that I presented here? So, um, starting with Yellowstone, Yellowstone, depending on which side of the fence you land on, Yellowstone is successful. It was it was very successful for the wolf. The problem being 
that the science. I guess when I said and, successful, I meant it was successful for the wolves and the humans, and everybody was happy. But go ahead. Well, and and that that's that's where I go. I think that it it was successful for the wolves. Their population has soared far beyond what the target populations were, but utilizing Yellowstone and the greater Yellowstone area as the argument or the shining star for Colorado or reintroduction in any other place is disingenuous because Colorado allows hunting. Colorado has grazing and public lands grazing and human habitation which Yellowstone National Park does not. Humans don't live there. They transit through and watch and um, participate in those ways with nature, but it's from a voyeuristic standpoint. Um, There is no domestic grazing. There is no hunting. And there is very little, if only seasonal, actually, human habitation within the park. So it's not necessarily a perfect idea of what nature is because humans are part of nature. We have an effect on nature, whether we are trying to consume consume bits of it or not. Um, just our sheer being there. Um, and then when you get outside of those situations where we have grazing, where we have agriculture, where we have hunting and a need for wildlife, um, both management and sustenance, um, those arguments tend to skew. Um, There's arguments about trophic cascade, which is what they pose in Yellowstone. And there's beautiful videos about it about the wolf came back and the songbirds came back and rivers moved and all of these other pieces. And it really is a, it's a glorious story. It's a beautiful thing, but it negates the effect with and for humans. And when you get out of the park, you have those effects and they're not necessarily always positive. Let's talk about Tropic Cascade. That came up in my research. Is that where you introduce or reintroduce a species and then a bunch of species come along? Is that that's the impression or remove something? What is Tropic, uh, tropic generally, Cascade? Tro- generally, Tropic Cascade is presented as um, the picture in my head, what it's been explored to me is you throw a pebble in a lake and ripples happen. And the ripples hit the splash water over onto a plant or out of something. And it's found in a positive manner. That plant that just got watered from the rock being thrown in is eaten by a bird. The bird is eaten by um, another bird. And then it, 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 like the taper, it, it spreads seed and it moves everything around and it's a positive illustration um and that's the way it has been posed coming out of the rocky of the greater yellowstone what i wonder about and i've always wondered i remember when the wolves were introduced i think it was back in what january february of 95 wasn't it yeah 
uh yeah i remember that was my mother was not happy uh and my mother was an ultra conservative in fact just a side note about my mother i think my mother was a lot more conservative than my father was now they were pretty conservative but i think my mother was more along the camp of the john birch society the more i think about the conversations her and i had when i was a teenager uh-huh. So she was not happy, but none. I want to know, and I don't know if you know this. I've always wondered, since the reintroduction of wolves in Yellowstone, has it affected humans? Have humans had to defend themselves in Yellowstone, or have there been measures taken place so that humans and wolves can coexist? How has that all panned out? I've always wondered that. To my knowledge, there has not been any human like attacks or anything like that within the park. Um, uh, and I don't know, you know, it would have to be a, a pretty interesting situation for that to happen just in general. Um, there is no conflict with the same game. There is no conflict with... Um, carrion there is there there they're just not there aren't those conflicts because humans aren't interacting in that way with the wolf they, you know they're they're watching from a distance um when they can see them they're not um they're not participating on the same levels as happens outside um then hu human wolf contact in the direct sense is not it's very rare where okay. we have human wolf contact conflict is with livestock, with dogs, um, those types of things. Um, it, it's not, uh, it's not direct when we're not having direct influence. We're not fighting over the same food in Yellowstone that we might be on the outside. Okay. Um, yeah. So what is going to happen then now that this ballot measurement has passed? It sounds like I read an article here at the very end and the person who wrote this, I can't even remember what the website was. I've been doing research like crazy for this podcast, but an interesting topic nonetheless. And a topic that needs a discussion because after all, this is the Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone podcast. So um, what happens now that the, the article that I read, you know, at the end, it just talked about how grazing on public lands is a right or a privilege, not a right. And we mm -hmm. should get rid of livestock grazing. The problem is the way that things are set up now, you can't get a lot of private land if you got a lot of private land there actually might be an argument based on this grazing on federal lands is a privilege not a right there might actually have a valid argument but the way the system is set up it's hard to get private land and cattle to my understanding need about what uh, 500 acres if you have a whole herd of cattle maybe if you had three or four cows it'd be a different story uh, so what would you say to that? So um, public lands management is designed to be multi-use and has 
been that for a very long time. Not saying they've done a good job. I'm not going there. Um, or a bad job. It just is multi-use. So they expect the resource to be utilized. One of the main things that we forget in that process is that we've also been fighting fires for decades. And now we have catastrophic burns because honestly, we don't have, at least in Colorado, we don't have the grazing numbers that we did even two decades ago. Um, we don't have, it, it doesn't happen. We also have one fire that starts and we have to put it out because it's too near an urban center if it were to get out of control. Um, so I think that my real answer to the grazing idea is yes, it is not, it, I, it is a right, but it is part of a multi-layered multi management system for our shared public ground. Um, animals are supposed to come in and graze the underbrush to one, fatten food for the nation, but also, and grow food for the nation, but also to um, help in fire mitigation when we are under a situation where the fuel loads are so high because for decades we've stopped them burning. Yeah, and actually in this article, one of the articles that I read, it actually talked about livestock and vegetation and how they, I guess, do, I didn't really understand the article, so forgive my ignorance here, but I guess it was talking about the short vegetation, I guess, just poking at it, as opposed to the wolves and all that would somehow provide, I don't know, get really big into the vegetation. Uh, sorry for uh, my ignorance here, but what would you say to that? Because So whenever, in this instance, the thought is you're they're going to reintroduce an apex predator and that with 43% of the ground in Colorado is public and um is isn't humans visit there but we don't live there um the majority of our wildlife and um a good amount of biomass for human consumption is grown there but those animals when the apex predator comes in basically all of that changes um it's in a vast area that has lots of nooks and crannies that it, you can't fence it. You can't put for, for stock and grazing, you can't fence it fed by federal law. You can't put them in a corral at night um, and disseminate that small area. There are no barns, there aren't those things. So some of the tools that are available to mitigate where the wolves will be hunting are not actually usable in those instances um but at the same time those animals that are there grazing um if done well are providing a public service because they're helping with um not only feeding people which is big um but it's uh 
in mitigating some of the other social pressures that we've put on the forest and on the landscape because we won't let it burn. And actually, at this point, we can't because the, the burns are devastating. They're neutralizing and sterilizing. It's not just a natural cleansing process. Okay, so let me read you. I just found it here uh, talking about livestock. It says livestock is a reason why ripened vegetation, why ripened areas across riparian? the West. What's that? Riparian, maybe? Yeah, riparian. Okay. Yeah. I'm a bad speller. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Uh, riparian across the West are in shambles. Livestock tends to con uh, tends to congregate along the stream where they where they compact or the compact soils and re and reduce the spondage. I guess s p o n g e spondage effect that storm water that stores water while they're uh, while their uh, hooves break away, while their hooves break apart, stream banks result in shallow stream weather than rather than deep, uh, rather than deep narrow ones. They also, anyway, this article goes on. What would you say to that, though? It's basically talking about the vegetation and the it how they destroy vegetation, soil, and all that. Yeah, in any grazing situation, regardless of the animal, um, if oh, it, it is says, hang on, I got to interrupt you. It says that uh, they also sure. they uh, they also consume streamside vegetation. They also consume uh, streamside vegetation. Um, eliminating livestock would also promote the restoration of wolves and beavers. So let's talk about that argument here because that's. Uh, let's let's uh yeah so yeah. so in, in any grazing situation and whether that's a wild grazer or a domestic grazer if they are if the if the area is too small the water is too limited there are going there's there's going to be some riparian change um that's that is that is what happens um in a well-managed in a well-managed grazing operation that doesn't happen. It's happening, dirty little secret, it's happening because of um, the American bison in Yellowstone National Park. They are overgrazing now that the wolf is back, but nobody talks about that. <laughs> oh, the, the they bison is overgrazing? Yeah, the bison, the bison population is larger than what the area can handle it's reached its carrying capacity in areas where they are creating riparian damage within rocky mountain national park and it is a native species okay so um, is that oh go ahead mm -hmm. so so what i'm saying is that that can happen anywhere and honestly in some situations just the simple task of bringing in, that it's not simple by any means, I shouldn't say that. The task of bringing in an apex predator may or may not affect that. Wolves don't go after bison unless they're desperate um, because they don't, they're not, they're not as effectual and they, it takes too much energy. But in that sense, and no hunting and no, and frankly, fencing around the park in the in the private lands 
is holding those animals in a tighter population than they would naturally do when they would disperse. So, um, and therefore a native population is creating riparian damage. This whole umbrella of saying one thing fit, fits all is, it's, in, it's inaccurate. And, and while it's a beautiful idea and a romantic idea, it doesn't fit with the number of humans that we have now. And you can't manage on a, on a small landscape level a need for everything at all times without factoring in the human component because the human component is huge. Well, let me ask you this. I've got a couple questions here. There was an editorial opinion in the Gazette. I'm not sure what Gazette it was. So probably the Denver Gazette or something about uh -huh. how there's a huge, uh, there's a wolf population of Montana and Wyoming since the introduction of wolves. Now, I'm not sure when the wolves were introduced back into Wyoming, outside of Yellowstone, obviously, and Montana. But the article went on to say that it's working here in Montana and Wyoming because the political leaders put an emphasis on industry up here. And I assume that's talking about the ranching specifically, since that's what Montana and Wyoming is known for. <laughs> and therefore they figured out how to control the population, but in leftist States like Colorado, no offense to you, yes, <laughs> but uh, I, it's not the first time I've heard it, Kevin, you're all good. <laughs> but uh, it's different. What, what, what would you say to that? It sounded. Uh, what would you say uh, to that? No, it's 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 very accurate. The um the animals that so Yellowstone was reintroduced. There were animals in um, both sides of Yellowstone that were introduced. There were animals in Idaho that were reintroduced, meaning wolves, and that was to the tune of 35 animals those animals bred and dispersed and throughout the esa process throughout the wants whims and desires of different public entities um and politics those and, and litigation actually those animals bred and spread quite far um you know, if, if they were reintroduced, say, in, in January of 1995 in the Greater Yellowstone, they bred and dispersed. We had our first wolf sighting in Colorado in 2004. Oh, wow. And these animals travel really far. They just don't always find a place that they want to stay or they don't find what they're seeking. Generally, I would have to venture to guess they're looking for um, someone of the opposite sex that they find attractive. Um, is what would motivate, seemingly motivate them. Um, but as that happened and as the populations grew, Montana and Wyoming and their agricultural lobbyists and their wildlife um, managers came up with various plans to both mitigate conflict and to balance try to find some balance in propagating the wolf so that it became a actual viable species again and was not on the brink of uh extinction 
frankly, and that others could live along with it. Giving, they, you know, Wyoming's a really good one. So in the trophy area, they allow hunting, but they don't have conflict. In the predator area, it is you can kill anything when when necessary. Um, and they've reached a pretty good balance. Their agricultural um, producers seem to be mostly comfortable with it. And their environmentalist thoughts kind of in the north of the trophy zone have gotten comfort in that the the populations are still growing and flourishing. So they've reached, it seems on the outside, they've reached a pretty good balance. I think one of the biggest misnomers, again, about applying those states to Colorado is that those three states in human population put together, we still have more people in, in the state of Colorado than those three states put together. When you say those three states, you're talking about Wyoming and uh, Montana and Colorado, correct? And Idaho. Oh, Idaho. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So do you think Colorado, though, if the politicians were that serious, do you think that there could be a happy medium uh, to satisfy those that want to rewild and farmers and ranchers that need to graze? Do you think there could be something that would satisfy everybody? now that the wolves are going to be reintroduced to Colorado along with other wildlife? I think that there, you know, there's always potential for finding compromise. That's how people stay married for decades. Um, oh, really? <laughs> supposedly. You mean you um, and your husband has never had a disagreement? <laughs> well, we've had many, but you continue <laughs> it by deciding to compromise and sometimes just deciding to stay married, right? Um, yep. But it's the same thing in politics. But right now, the politics in Colorado are, um, we are not balanced. We're not balanced. We have a super majority and we have a population that is balanced with that super majority, meaning they don't live in wild spaces. They look at wild spaces. They um, perceive the wild spaces to be capable of doing and caring for everything. Um, and until there is a problem in their backyard, they don't see it as a problem. They have, and, and this is not just Colorado. I think this is society in general right now, is we have a societal guilty conscience that we moved into their territory and we must bend to make room for prey and predator alike. Problem being is that with that mentality, we actually put especially the wildlife in a position that is not healthy for them. You know, overloaded bear populations in urban areas are not living a healthy life for a bear. Um, deer that take up residence on college campuses and in town parks and live out their lives in those areas are not living a healthy deer or bear life. Um, the animals on the outside in the wild areas 
are living those good deer and bear lives, but ultimately like the deer have to travel out of the wild places and into human interface and conflict elk as well when they move down into the valleys in the winter and into the what used to be wintering grounds it is now subdivisions um and we kind of as humans go oh well we moved into their territory but we're creating an we've created an artificial habitat for them um and it's not it's not healthy so what you're saying is uh, more deer and whatnot are going to universities, uh, you know, taking up residence there because we bought out farmland and whatever, and this happens all over. This isn't just yes. in Colorado. And uh, so therefore we're making it hard for wildlife to, to live and do what they need to. Yes. And that's never getting talked about. We always hear about the cattle and the grazers and whatnot. Right. Yeah. Right. And the cattle, the cattle and the grazers, I mean, the cattle and the grazers are, we are all part of that. We are all in most areas. I'm mean, going to only speak for Colorado, um, but we have a 35 acre subdivision law that we don't look at what those subdivisions do. If we, if we break things down to 35 acres and, um, what we have is a blanket of 35 and 40 acre parcels cut up all over the state. People don't necessarily um, really actually, one in some cases want that much acreage, but it's the most cost effective to get onto. They also want an agricultural break on their property taxes because everybody wants to watch their pocketbook. And that moves us away from kind of an agronomist society in one instance, it also cuts up habitat, it cuts up feed, it creates conflict as more suburban-minded and urban-minded people live closer to the wildlife conflicts, especially in the wintertime and in the wintering grounds. If you look at any major river drainage, when you get into the bottomlands, where did we build the where did we build the towns? At the river bottoms. At the river bottoms. Yep. Where do the, where did the game where did the game historically winter? In at those river same river bottoms. bottoms. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and right. at, at as we you know as we have highways that we need to move ourselves and our commerce back and forth, um, we we make that as as there are problems with whether to be domestic grazing or wildlife moving back and forth and there's vehicle conflicts, what do we do? We put up high fence to not let them cross there when there's a lot of conflict. Well, we've not only cut them off from migratory paths, we've cut we've cut off their genetic linkages to broadening gene pools <laughs> in some instances. Um, and then going through a regulatory process and a necessary process, to do underpasses and overpasses and all of these other things, it's it's a mess. It's reality, but it's very messy. And that's kind of the overarching scope of all of this thought of, I want, you know, the people that want to hear the wolf howl at night, they don't think about the college kids 
who the college biology students who signed on to 114 to get it onto the ballot, they didn't understand the wintering pro problems that our wildlife are facing and that they can't have winter, you know, winter closures are challenged on every front by all of the recreation, fat biking and snowshoeing and cross-country skiing and early season mountain biking and hikers and dog walkers and all these things. It's just not very well publicized. So it's out because I lived in Idaho when this happened, when they introduced the wolves into Yellowstone. And I'm sure they did into Idaho and all that in 95, 1995 as well. It never was a problem to have the, I've never seen a deer enter any of that in my subdivision. Although, if you went to the subdivision above mine, where I was living, yes, there were deer tracks up there. Now, uh -huh. granted, there weren't a whole lot of people at that subdivision, so I don't know if it was a big deal, and I don't know how that was managed, but I remember my brother-in-law and I went running up there just for fun, and he mentioned to me that there were deer tracks. Um. So, yeah, I. but you're saying in Colorado, because it's not managed well like it is in Wyoming and Montana— these wolves and deer are more likely to come down to your, are you worried that you're going to have a deer and a wolf in your backyard? Um, eventually, yes, the wolves will be everywhere in the state. That, that is because that's, of mismanagement, that's common. correct? That, because of no management. Yes. That yeah. that's, that's going to be common. Um, they will, I mean, it, it's really nothing against vilifying the wolf. They're no. just following where their food goes. And no, their food comes down to wintering grounds that are now mostly habitat for humans. Um, so they're going to come into play. There, you know, there was a lot of talk in the 114 process about like the Wiminooch wilderness is the largest in the state and it happens to be down here in my front yard and um you fly over it you go well wait a minute most of the women inch is nine thousand feet or above very few things live up there and certainly not a, a plethora of prey um that the wolf will need to eat they follow it down south, just as the lion do, just as, uh, well, the bear hibernates, so it's a little different. But um, th there's a natural order and process that we kind of forget about because, especially like in this rewilding, they we take humans out of the equation and we can't. We can't take them out just because it's not even taking us out of the equation when we say, we accept them being in our territory and we've moved into there. So it's okay. When it comes down to it, a human being is going to fight. We are apex predators. We have incisors, we have canines and we have eyes in front of our head. Biologically, we are predators. And when it comes down to it, and there is a conflict or a challenge between predators, we are all going to fight for our own lives. Of course. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, President Trump got... Oh, well, let, before we go there, let's talk about these dogs from Russia. 
Do you think that they will be able to fight off the pack of wolves? Because you'd mentioned something. Uh, so, Fish and Wildlife has, over the last couple of years, uh, um, have been helping producers obtain and train these kangles. And they're very big, like, like 150 pounds, lots of hair. Um, and they're, they're kind of in an experimental phase to see if they will help. They're bred as bear dogs, so they obviously have had the history to become the to become a bear dog. Your breed is designed to be able to fend off bears. Um, one of the things for livestock guardian dogs with wolves is that most people are not going to care. Most producers aren't necessarily going to carry an entire pack of livestock guardian dogs. They will have a certain number based on the number of animals they're grazing. Um, and most of those aren't going to, you know, if a, if a pack is six, one or two livestock guardian dogs is not necessarily going to be able to fend off six other animals of similar stature. Um, it's just that that's just what it is. Um, these kangles are still in the experimental phase, but what I know from a few people, few producers that I've been involved with is that one, they're very difficult to train. They don't actually socialize well, even with other kangles. Um, and they are, because they're so big, they're extremely expensive to maintain throughout the year meaning dog food prices are expensive. so basically i suppose you could train them it'd take a long time to train them and then what you're saying in many words possibly is these might be good for dogs that are uh, these might be good for extremely rich ranchers possibly <laughs> possibly and they need an agricultural write-off yes um yeah. that may be um they may be they may be they may prove to be very effectual once they're more um supported and there's more of them in the states um yeah. or or maybe they'll find you know maybe they'll find a lineage that is a little more social amongst themselves um like i said i've only met people that have are you know they're they're trying to train one and it's fighting with their other livestock guardian dogs, um, which is ineffectual for taking care of, the, yeah. the, in this case, sheep that they're supposed to be watching over. So Speaking it's just, of it's not sheep, a perfect I know that uh, this article, this commentary in the Gazette in Colorado did talk about an incident in Utah where uh, wolves mauled about 18 sheep in one attack. Speaking of which. Uh-huh. And that could easily well, think, happen. The, the wolf proponents like to put down that it's less than 1% of livestock that is attacked. Um, and the st statistically, they're not wrong, but the problem being that 1% might all be on one ranch, might all be in one night. And that is hugely detrimental to the high overhead, low profit business of raising livestock. Not only that, but let's talk about meat. 
Now, ranchers are perfectly okay with the government giving them a paycheck when, in fact, there's been a loss of cattle. However, uh, the art of this opinion, and there is a link to it in the show notes, this opinion piece did discuss that there might not be, I can't remember how it exactly it was worded, but something to the effect of there may, there may not be a substantial amount of money to go around when these wolves are reintroduced, correct? Yeah, so state in, in Colorado, there's actually, a, I'm proud of the compensation plan that we were able to come up with. Um, there have been some caveats in policy that um, ding it some, in my opinion. Uh, but it, for the most part, the compensation plan is something that I, I personally am proud of. I think we did a, a, as good a job as possible, given the circumstances for our producers. Where it lacks is funding that process. Um, they have an ability to put in for in in a single incident up to 30 up a single incident single animal up to thirty thousand dollars depending on what vet care was necessary and the value the proven market value of that animal that's fantastic no other state has something like that to those levels but the purse that you go ask when when you say i need money if that purse is not well-funded, then that money, whether promised or not, the money won't materialize. Um, rolling back towards the North American model that we talked about earlier, for wolf introduction in Colorado, um, the legislation is that they cannot utilize hunting dollars. So all of the funding that is available, but the majority of the funding that is available in the state of Colorado is from hunting and fishing license revenue. That's not available for the wolf program. That money has to come from the legislature. So ultimately in Colorado, there will be an ask to the legislature on an annual basis for funding for the compensation plan. That will be granted up to X, which is right now $350,000 annually, um, that will be granted, but Colorado is a balanced budget state. So if they don't budget for $350,000 every year, it will have to come out of some other process. Um, example, when the State Wildlife Agency went to the legislature and, and um, actually they didn't, because they were muzzled, they couldn't go ask. But a few astute legislators, when they realized when the wolf was relisted federally during the process of the bill passing, making a plan, all of that, the some astute legislators went back to the legislature, went to the budget and said, our state wildlife agency is going to need another million dollars for the EIS, 10J, and NEPA process annually. Um, that was granted. Uh, everybody agreed that that was necessary. What nobody talked about is when it went back to the budgeting committees, 
they had to rebalance the budget because it wasn't in the original budget. It came in in amendment. And ultimately where it fleshed out was from the general fund, which funds roads and education. So road construction and maintenance and our children are now paying for wolf introduction to the tune of a million dollars a year. That's probably what this article, this opinion piece was referring to. And the part where it says meat producers appreciate payments for loss when they can be verified. However, the mere presence of uh, a predece- uh, predecessors can affect the health of their heart, the health of their heart in ways that aren't that aren't confiscatable, I think is what yeah. it is. Yeah. So but- there was there was no um while there are mitigation measures available and the state agency is um accumulating those tools um to help out producers, what was never talked about and never it was talked about, but it, it is not financially addressed is the mental wear and tear, the actual labor costs necessary to watch herds at night, move them into places that are fenced, actually put up, take down, move, maintain the mitigation measures that can be provided. Fladry um, needs to be, you know, Fladry from on the ground people, Don Gittleson being one who actually has already lost cows to wolves. Um, he said his, on his on his ranch, they put in um, a couple miles of fladry, and it lasted about two weeks before the wolves figured out how to get around it. And so oh. you have to move it and make it new. Um, and use, you know, he said it, it's about, he's, he's utilized a bunch of different things now, but he says it's about every two weeks that you have to change things up because they're really smart. Um, so they just, it, and nobody talks about that. Nobody, we didn't, we talked about it, but nobody addressed the human wear and tear of somebody having to stay up nights and nights and nights on end to address if wolves come in. Um, not to mention the, um, you know, the heartache and the emotional stress when you see your animals dead prior to when they are supposed to be, or in a manner that you have to put them down because they have catastrophic injuries because you were able to run the wolves off, but not before they did too much damage. Well, what do you think of President Trump taking the wolves off the endangered species list? I think it was so that farmers and ranchers could hunt these wolves, which leads me to another question. Will Colorado allow such a thing? It sounds like the governor (laughs) is pretty adamant about no hunting wolves. Time will tell. So wolves have been an endangered species ping pong ball for a very, very long time. Um, And they elicit so much emotion on both sides of the argument. They elicit so much emotion that I'm actually of the opinion that I don't think anybody, including myself, think about it completely soundly. Um, 
Uh, there's argument. I, I I can understand the argument of going, they're not in every state. Well, we've got people in every state, so maybe it's not appropriate for them to be in every state. Are they recovered because they're not in their full historic range? No. But are they recovered to a point where they are no longer in danger of extinction? Yes. Um, are they smart and adaptable? Yes. Not like the coyote. Um, but... There, there's. I, I can see both sides of the argument. What I think about Trump taking it off is, it shouldn't necessarily be a federal mandate at this point. That should I be left agree. to to the states, because yeah. each state has different um, capability, ability, geography, everything else that should be dealt with at the state level. In our state, to be honest, that's scary as shit. Yeah. <laughs> Because we have people making decisions like reintroducing the wolf when they go to their corner market twice a week and um, don't have, you know, they don't have a squirrel in their yard because they had to hire the exterminator because it was getting into their roof and causing leaks and this and that. And they don't live in a wild space, but our wild spaces are limited anymore and we need to adjust and manage ourselves and all of the species on the ground or in the air because we need to be aware of each other Um, and i forgot your you had a second part to that question oh lethal take so currently as the plan reads and what the eis which becomes final today um allow is the only time that a producer can can um, take lethal action is when they catch a wolf in 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 pursuit they're in the act they are actually biting actually trying to take down be it livestock or a dog or really anything those are the only times Um, otherwise you have to receive a permit that permit has um, bits and pieces that are involved in it. There has to be a, to, for it to be a lethal permit. It has to there has to be a verified kill. It has to be okayed by the regional manager from CPW and as well as the director of CPW. Um, making all of those things happen with an animal that can travel fifty miles a day is probably going to be difficult. Um, And it's going to be every single animal, especially here early on, that has conflict is going to be under such a microscope that um, it's going to be, it's going to be a difficult situation. So you can only hunt these wolves or kill them if they are killing your livestock or attempting to, or you have a permit to do so, correct? Correct. There is no hunting. Um, This is purely a producer-driven effect. What would the permit Um, do exactly? Well, keep people out of jail. Okay. So if I'm a rancher and I have livestock... 
that livestock is attempting to kill my cattle, I can kill them, but I guess I'm a little fuzzy. When can I kill them as opposed to where would I have to have the permit to do so? You basically always have to have a permit okay. unless you catch and are able to document that animal, the wolf, in the act of killing one of your so you better That's have cheap. your video. You better have your video camera ready. You better on your have phone. your T's and I's dotted. Yeah, your T's crossed and your I's dotted. So if you have this permit, you can basically kill the wolf uh, right as it attempts to kill your livestock or hurt them, and then your permit hopefully would cover you. Hopefully, yes. And like I said, it it takes and I say some. Hopefully, it's, it takes very some, cautiously. It, it, yes, it, it and it will take some statewide agreement that there is a problem. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm not naive enough to think that that will not be challenged. Um, oh, it will be. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised it hasn't been challenged yet, um, because there are many especially on the wolf proponent side, they didn't want compensation for any producers. Um, they didn't want, they don't, they didn't think that that was proper. Um, and they certainly never want an animal to die for doing, I mean, and in, in, in defense of the wolf, they're just trying to eat. They just want to live another day. Yeah. Um, it, they're not they're not bad in that they're doing those things it's just um ineffectually placed it's a it's it's a bad it's a bad choice on their part but it's it, it's it, you know it's what what animals present itself when they need to eat okay so i'm gonna ask a question we're we're gonna wrap this up um but I, i've gotta ask where were the, when I forgive my ignorance here. When were the wolves taken out of Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, and all that? Where did they go? Where did, who took them out? Where did they go to? Because they had to have. The, how did that all happen? Um, I'll speak to Colorado. Um, okay. Because that's where I'm the most comfortable. Yeah. the The last wolves were taken out of Colorado in the 1940s. Um, oh. There were actually government trapping and poisoning programs that were run and funded by the government because of whether real real or perceived conflict um for domestic and wild game human want and need oddly though at the same time in Colorado we had almost no elk herd Interesting. Because in the 1940s was when the sportsmen rallied and funded to have elk reintroduced in the state. Interesting. What do you think? It's okay if you don't know much about this. What do you think of the United Nations goal 14 and 15 to rewild and resustain ecosystems as part of the sustainable growth plan? Do you know much about that? Uh, like Agenda 21. Well, Agenda 2030, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yep. Um, 
I, I guess I'm behind on my years. Um, you know, I, I guess it's the same way I look at the wolf here. It's, it, I am tree hugging enough. I don't know what that is uh, to think, wow, you know, some of the, some of the ideas and the ideas are really, really, really neat. I, I, I think that would be, I think a lot of them would make, would be a beautiful place to live and a beautiful ecosystem to live within. But we don't leave enough room for the humans that we have. And it's the same hard question that I've been asked that question. And I've talked at length with many people, um, mostly throughout the wolf process, where they say, you know, when they've talked about rewilding, they've talked about predators that really sit at the top of the food chain and dictate what happens with the rest of everything, really, and the interconnectivity of everything. And they said, oh, it's this I want, you know, just like I, I referenced earlier, these people want pre-European settlement. They want something from centuries ago and that those dates kind of change depending on the person. And I always look at them and go, so what humans are you going to, are you, are you going to, frankly, are you going to off yourself? Are you going to take yourself out of the picture and your children are the young kids who are thinking this is a great way to go? Are they going to make sure they don't have children? Um, are we going to take pre-European settlement really to what it was? And Colorado right now has almost 16, 6 million people. And back at the time when they were, you know, when wolves were here and when there was um, our version of plentiful wild game and the, our, whatever numbers of livestock that we had were a, a, a comfortable balance balance for these people's chosen point in time there was a million people here where do we put the other five million if we're going to allow if we allow that to happen it, it's harsh but it's real we are what? not we don't live in a zoo we don't live behind plexiglass we affect nature and nature affects us because we are all part of it well, the problem is these environmentalists, I'm not saying all of them, but a lot of them treat the environment like a religion and the animal rights people. And a lot of them, I'm not saying all, but a lot of them, there, there's a group of them who think that we're just visitors here and we need to be good to the earth, which we do. But the problem yes. is finding that balance. But there are people who go very overboards. But One of the things that we look at with the strong environmental movement is that what really at it, at the essence and the core and the base philosophies, I think we actually all agree. We want to, we want our environment to be healthy. We want yes. to live on in, in, in perpetuity. We want to live within it in a way that we're not doing harm to ourselves or others fur, feather and fowl um or fauna around us we don't we don't we want we want it to be utopia um yeah. and we would all agree on that but Absolutely. i i'm kind of looking at it more crassly myself and i go i look at the demographics so five percent of the nation hunts one percent of the nation produces all of the domestic food for the nation so 6% are 
kind of living a closer to natural balanced life than 94%. Now, all of us will, uh, I love river otters. They make my day. I think they're the neatest creatures. Um, and I'll put a, I'll, I'll put change in the quarter jar to save the otter. I'll do that stuff. I, I believe in, uh, my family lives off in multiple ways. My family lives because there are elk here to hunt. Um, that's what we feed ourselves. That's also how we provide our living. Um, but we have to protect them. And I think that everybody on the whole, we all do that. We put these industries, environmental especially, um, are huge industries with huge amounts of money. And literally that money and that piece will lead to some corruption and will lead to marketing and competitions and um, social social science-driven PR campaigns that bring money back into their pockets so that they can sustain their own livings. Um, and we all do that, but it's basically 6% of the population, what, whatever your politics, 6% of the population is daily living and affected by the decisions and money-making capabilities of 95% of 94% of the population. Yeah. So now that this ballot measurement has passed in Colorado, what can people do ranchers, everybody in Colorado, what can people do to make things better? What are what are some solutions here? Because we can talk about what's wrong all we want, and we should, but yes. we need to come up with some solutions. What do you think should be done now? And what first can and people do? Um, I think first and foremost, politicians on both sides of the aisle need to not focus on their personal agendas, um, especially where wildlife management is concerned. That needs to be left to the scientists. We have 356 trained, degreed biologists on staff at CPW. They've done copious amounts of study, uh, for the wolf in particular, about what would and wouldn't fit, where we had good um, habitat, what types of carrying capacities based on our prey base, all of these things, they have that information. They have had that information. They also have studied the human conflicts and ultimately always, always went back to until two, and the last time was in 2016, always went back to the fact that wolves that naturally migrated into the state and were causing no conflict were to be left alone. Let them do their natural thing and we don't have to manage them. Now that we are looking at artificial management, I think what we all can do is really go back, ask the hard questions of the biologists, make sure that both sides are willing to hear answers that we don't want, potentially, and then follow their lead. Follow what is best for all of the animals and all of the humans, not just what we want because we have decided there's a certain place in time that we want to go back to. 
Yeah. Well, is there anything else that I have uh, glossed over that you want to talk about or anything that you want to say? Um, I don't, not that I can think of. I guess that we all, you know, I think that we all need to remember that we all can, whether we consume meat of any sort, um, whether we consume air and space, even in our wilder places, that we all have effect and pressures on other things. And we need to recognize that even without intent. Okay. Last question. Kind of lighten things up a little. <laughs> Who is your favorite commentator? Now, this can be a podcaster, a person on YouTube, Rumble, BitChute, uh, the radio, TV. Who is your favorite commentator and why? Oh, that's an excellent question. I have quite a few. Um, but actually, if I were if I were to answer right off the cuff, the first person that came to, to mind was Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> He was a commentator? No, not necessarily. Oh. He wouldn't speak politics, but he talked about life and, you know, frankly, the pursuit of happiness um, and how to be good to people and how to recognize when people were being good to ourselves. Um, and it's funny because that was the very first thing that came to mind. Um, but as far as political commentators... I don't know. Let's I, do I listen this. to Who I listen is to your a lot. Favorite top five political commentators. Let's put it that way. Although Jimmy Buffett, that's a, that's an interesting answer. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was the first one that came to mind. Okay. Um, I literally can't think of one that raises above the others. I listen to I listen to a lot of conservative talk radio. Mm -hmm. Um podcasts i live in i listen to my first year of wildlife oriented podcasts um but i also try to listen to the other i try to get my news from a lot of different places because i recognize that all news and any form of news that we get is sadly there so that they can sell advertising spots and that that's really what it's all come down to we have a 24-hour news cycle it doesn't matter if it's even true or not um because it'll be gone in a short period of time but let um, me ask you this and then i'll bridge yeah. into my commentary uh -huh. um what do you think and i'm asking you this because you live in colorado and this is not a bash against this commentator this is just an innocent question what do you think of Mandy Connell on KOA News Radio eight fifty AM? You know, I only know cur I haven't I I've only cursorily listened. Um so I don't really have a balance. And where we live I only live twenty twenty minutes from the New Mexico border. And oh, okay. um, I, honestly, I there were literally years where I knew more of what was going on in New Mexico politics than in Colorado um, because of what came now over that... the airwaves, both for television on the one channel we got and radio. Um, so I, there you was know, a while catch I know to that though, you could have listened to uh, AM 850 at nighttime because they're a 50,000 watt station at night. 
anyway. Yeah, sometimes, but I actually usually go to bed at night. Um, okay. <laughs> and, and like when when we're actually in the woods, we literally would get one station that was clear enough to listen to. And frankly, it's a little local station here out of Green, Colorado, um, put on by the local church. And oh. that was what we could hear scratchily on our little AM FM radio. Okay. So um, where where we operate in the woods, there there's just not much outside contact, which is both a blessing and a curse. Um, yeah. And, it, you know, it, it actually I am I don't believe myself to be ignorant, but because I get to pick and choose how I'm going to get my news, um, it keeps me mentally healthier and happier. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you this. You might be surprised, and we're going to end this here shortly, but you might be surprised, being the podcaster that I am, I only pay attention to news about once a week now. And yeah. part of it's because to keep myself normal, part of it, I'm so busy researching topics like this. Any of yeah. you who've listened to my podcast know that they're very topical. Now, we'll cover current events at times, yes, like this one, is, but it's topical in the sense that I bring someone on and ask questions that knows a whole lot more about what they're talking about than me. But I will tell you this, and the reason I asked, what do you think of Mandy Connell? I forgot that you live near New Mexico. My apology. But um, <laughs> although if you really wanted to listen to Mandy, Con Mandy Connell, you could listen on your iPhone on iHeartRadio. But anyway, okay. Um, I asked that, though, because I'm finding that a lot of the commentators – Sean Hannity and Mark Levin, especially, they say good things. They say things I agree with, but they don't go deeper into the issues as I would like, which is one thing I appreciate about Glenn Beck. Now, I don't agree with Glenn Beck on everything. In fact, him and I have been at odds many times. But I still think there is more good to Glenn Beck than bad. Sean Hannity... I agree with him on a lot of things, but even Sean Hannity, much to my disappointment, I had faith in him for a while, but much to my disappointment, he is a Republican crony. I would even consider him a neocon, uh, much to my dismay. And I did not appreciate him kissing up to Andrew Cuomo during the beginning of COVID. So I have to be careful then. In fact, it's one of the reasons I don't listen to Sean Hannity as much as I used to. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm i a little careful uh, <laughs> about where I get my news from as well. I'll tell you, though, right now, when I get the chance, I listen to Dan Bongino. Uh -huh. I, I, I figure I had a, I, since I asked people, right now I listen to Dan Bongino, Glenn Beck, and a podcaster out of Utah, he does a radio show in a podcast form called Sam Bush, uh, called Liberty Roundtable with Sam Bushman. Uh, those are the people I go to for now. Not always changes, but that's who I go to now. I think so. As in in my position as the Colorado Officers Association president, I have um, landed not. Um, <laughs> my, my not necessarily a choice of my own, but I've landed more in politics than I wanted to be. Um, yeah. And 
how it works and how it, you know, how the day-to-day operations work and how on a very regular basis, I recognize that as general citizens, our eighth grade civics class did not teach us anywhere near what goes on in the workings of our governmental processes. Um, of course not, because the education system has been messed up by the Rockefellers and the Deweys. Of course. Well, of course all, all that, that that like you like you said there, and there and there's multiple causes, but I think that um, I guess when now that now that you now we chatted a little bit, I want to answer that. Where do I get my news? I get my news by being there. I get okay. my my news by granted. I'm following my own professional and personal interests. Yes. But I participate on that level as much as po- on on all levels, be they local, state or federal with my interests by being there so that I'm not receiving that news second or third hand. I sat there and watched the decision making. I made yeah. the comment to the congressional committee or w- whatever it is. I participated in that process, and therefore, I'm using my own eyes, my own ears, to give myself the news. Yeah. Well, uh, if there's nothing else to discuss, I will end the podcast and talk to you all later, folks. Thank you for listening to the Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone podcast. If you'd like to follow the podcast on Facebook, just do a search on Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone and the Facebook page will pop right up. If you want to follow the podcast on X, Gitter, and True Social, just do a search for at RKY Freedom Zone. That's at RKY Freedom Zone. Don't forget to use our new hashtag when commenting on a podcast that I have put up or something that I've written on social media. Just use hashtag RKY Freedom. That's hashtag RKY Freedom. If you'd like to make a suggestion for the podcast, or perhaps you have a guest you think I should interview, please email me Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at protonmail.com. That's Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at P R O T O N M A I L.com. I'm Kevin Williams, and thanks for listening to the Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone podcast.